This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The Supreme Leader, he was initially very skeptical of COVID-19. He said it's not that big of a deal. And then when so many top officials in Iran contracted it, he came out and essentially alleged this was a conspiracy theory. This was, you know, biological weapon ostensibly launched by the United States to weaken Iran and to weaken China. And by calling it a biological weapon, he gave himself the pretext to appoint a revolutionary guard commander rather than a physician to, to lead the task force against COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So, so again, my sense is that what's happening, at least in the near term, is not that this virus is bringing down the Islamic Republic, but it's accelerating Iran's transition to military dictatorship. On the COVID front, right, there's a possibility that the Iranians could look at the U.S. being inwardly focused and perceive an opportunity, or at the same time, see the president in some political trouble as a result of COVID here and be somewhat fearful that he might want to pick a fight with them. Early on when the world and obviously the United States was consumed in the early days of the pandemic, uh, Iran did launch, uh, Iran's proxies in Iraq launched a military attack uh, against U.S. forces. I think that um, the Iranian regime is mindful of of the fact that President Trump is... um, incredibly unpredictable and I think the goal, the long-standing goal of Iran's supreme leader vis-a-vis the United States has been neither peace nor war, neither outright confrontation nor conciliation. Mm. And I suspect that the Iranian regime is just going to try to hunker down and hold tight until November 2020 and hope that a Biden administration comes to office, which will be more inclined to to go back to the JCPOA, which would effectively remove very burdensome sanctions on Iran. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. 
It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Kareem Sajapur is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he specializes on Iran and U.S. foreign policy toward the Middle East. Kareem is also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. Kareem has been on our show before, and we just sat down with him to talk about all things Iran in the age of COVID-19. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Kareem, welcome back to Intelligence Matter. It is great to have you on the show again. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be with you. Lots to discuss, so let's get right to it. First, Kareem, Iran and coronavirus. How hard has COVID-19 hit Iran, both from a public health perspective and from an economic perspective? How has the government responded and how has all of that affected public attitudes toward the government? What's your sense? Mm -hmm. Iran has been Sure, Iran has been hit very hard from a public health perspective. The official figures are uh, approximately 7,000 deaths and approximately 120,000 positive cases. So that would put Iran in the top 10 in both uh, total COVID-19 cases and total deaths. But the unofficial figures are likely to be much, much higher. You know, Iran, when I'm looking at the top 10 countries in terms of total contractions. It's obviously the United States, Britain, Italy, Spain, France, Brazil, Belgium, Germany. You know, these are all open societies where there's, um, you know, there's journalism, there's statisticians, there's there's open data. Um, Iran is obviously none of those things. And so uh, I think it's widely accepted the government has been trying to suppress the official numbers, which are quite a bit higher. And so from a public health perspective, Iran has been hit hard. And this happens at a time when oil prices have also collapsed. You know, obviously, oil prices are Iran's number one source of revenue. And you add on to that the incredibly onerous U.S. sanctions against Iran, which have really uh, inhibited Iran's ability to export its oil. And then you add on to that all the money Iran is spending in the region to uh, keep afloat its regional allies, whether that's Bashar Assad in Syria, Lebanese, Hezbollah, Houthis in Yemen, Shiite militias in Iraq. And this has really been a perfect storm for Iran. And, you know, I, I um, have the last two months been back at home where I grew up in Michigan, helping out my parents. And for that reason, I've been in touch with family in Iran and extended family in Iran in a way I hadn't been for many years. And it's clear talking to both family and friends uh, and just reading, you know, the the social media on Iran that there's enormous uh, popular fatigue and and anger and exasperation. But I don't think that that's translating into any type of um, political agitations. People are just really, they're tired, they're scared, uh, they're fatigued, they're fed up. But there's no signs that that's manifesting itself, at least for now, into a popular protest against the government. So, Kareem, most public health experts 
you know, expect COVID-19 to be with us for quite some time, 18 to 24 months. And I'm just wondering what's your sense in terms of if that's true in Iran, they have a presidential election, I think, in mid-2021. So could we could we eventually see this public frustration play out politically, do you think, or not? You know, it's possible. Uh, there have been so many protests in Iran over the years, and they've all, most all of them come very unexpectedly out of the blue. They're oftentimes, you know, they're, they're triggered by uh, an economic event, you know, a rise in oil prices, oh, I'm sorry, a rise in, 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 in living costs, inflation, um, and then, you know, the political unrest follows. Um, but I would say in terms of, you know, what, to, what, what at least I'm paying attention to in Iran, number one is, the health of the supreme leader. And we've been saying this for a long time, as you know, Michael, you know, for lo- as long as I've been following Iran the last two decades, people have been saying that the supreme leader is on his deathbed. And, um, you know, he's proven, Ayatollah Khamenei has proven to be quite resilient to the point that he's one of the longest serving autocrats in the world right now. He's certainly the longest serving autocrat in the Middle East. He's been supreme leader since 1989. But he's now 80 years old. And many of uh, the top political leadership in Iran has contracted COVID-19. And so, you know, he's in a, in a very tough spot because he's already in, he's already surrounded by a very small coterie of advisors. You know, there's not a whole, he's an incredibly suspicious guy, mm. doesn't trust a lot of people. And so if he contracts COVID-19 at age, at age 80, you know, that could be very detrimental to his health. The other thing I'm watching in Iran is that, in my opinion, the the way this virus is having an impact on Iranian politics, it's not that it's leading to, at the moment at least, you know, uh, popular uprisings that could bring down the uh, Islamic Republic. I think what's what it's doing is it's accelerating a transition which already started happening a decade ago, which is Iran's transition from essentially a clerical dictatorship to military dictatorship. Mm. You're seeing that the revolutionary guards are much in much more overt control of the country than they were before. And I think one notable data point is the fact that the supreme leader he was initially very skeptical of COVID-19. He said it's not that big of a deal. And then when so many top officials in Iran contracted it, he came out and essentially um, uh, alleged this was a conspiracy theory. This was, you know, biological weapon ostensibly um, launched by the United States to weaken Iran and to weaken China. And by calling it a biological weapon, he gave himself the pretext to appoint a revolutionary guard commander rather than a physician to to lead the task force against COVID-19. Mm. So, so again, my sense is that what's happening, at least in the near term, is not that this virus is bringing down the Islamic Republic, but it's accelerating Iran's transition to military dictatorship. Kareem, can you walk us through, can you describe how Iranian policy in the region has evolved since the killing of Qasem Soleimani. Did that deter the Iranians in any way, particularly in Iraq or not? Uh, What's your sense? Uh, To be honest, Michael, I still think it's a bit early to 
to to say, I mean, Qasem Soleimani, it seems like he was killed many years ago now, but it was just a few months ago in January of 2020. And, you know, early on, Iran, we saw them retaliate. They launched uh, um, missile strikes against uh, an Iraqi uh, uh, base uh, where U.S. troops um, are located and they, they injured uh, hundreds of troops, causing uh, brain injuries, brain trauma to many dozens of them. Um, and they, they followed up on several occasions uh, doing that. So, so on one hand, uh, Iran's aggression, its agitations against the United States and the region in some ways increased after the, after the killing of Soleimani. They didn't uh, decrease. You know, at the same time, I think that uh, Qasem Soleimani was... Uh, a larger-than-life figure uh, uh, for the Iranian government. He, for the last two decades, had essentially been the tip of Iran's spear in the Middle East, whether that was in Lebanon, in Syria, in the Palestinian territories, in Yemen, in Iraq. And so he, his shoes uh, are, are very difficult for the regime to fill. He didn't, the, his successor, a guy called Ismail Qani, doesn't have that same charisma, doesn't have the same respect among um, Iran's regional proxies that Soleimani uh, has, doesn't have the same level of charisma. And so um, I think that on one hand, you could argue that um, we haven't seen Iran, uh, you know, it's Iran's regional ambitions and its hostility towards the United States certainly haven't diminished since Soleimani was killed. You could argue that they are, are less effective mm. than they were, mm. and one, um, you know, one example of that is that the candidate they were trying to push for the premiership, the position of Iraqi prime minister, um, they they didn't manage, and so you know it it seems that uh, in the region, if you talk to Iran's regional adversaries, they will say that you know Iran is is less effective than it was in the Soleimani era. So, Kareem, do you have any sense for how the Iranians are trying to work with their proxies in the region? Soleimani obviously took the lead on that. He's no longer there. Any sense of, of how they're trying to do that? Is Ghani himself trying to do it? Are they trying to do it other ways? Have they lost some control over the proxies? And is there a danger associated with that? How do you, how do you think about that set of questions? I haven't seen any examples of Iran losing control over its proxies. I think the essential model that they're working from is the Lebanese Hezbollah model. And uh, Lebanese Hezbollah has been Iran's most successful creation since the 1979 revolution. And I think essentially what Iran is trying to do in the region is to franchise the Hezbollah model in different countries, whether that's Shiite militias in Iraq, the Houthis in Yemen. Um, They've even been effective, Iran has been effective at recruiting Pakistani and Afghan Shia militiamen to go and fight in Syria on behalf of Bashar Assad. Um, And so the the model that Iran has has, has sought to emulate is is the Hezbollah model. But that model is um, more and more difficult for Iran to pursue that model, given uh, Iran's incredibly difficult economic circumstances. You oftentimes see in popular protests in Iran, one of the slogans of the protesters, people say, 
forget about Palestine, think about us, mm-hmm. forget about Syria, think about us. So there's been a domestic backlash to Iran's uh, regional activities. And in the region, Iran also has paid an enormous cost because of its regional policies. You know, there was a time, I'm sure you remember this, Mike, when you were in government, when uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran was quite popular, including in the Sunni Arab world. You know, people admired Iran, including Sunni and Christian Arabs, admired Iran for standing up to Israel, for standing up to the United States. But if you look at opinion polling now, uh, Iran is incredibly unpopular in the Sunni Arab world. Even the Palestinians, who Iran has spent billions of dollars on the Palestinian cause over the last several decades. Iran is very unpopular among Palestinian populations when you look at polling figures. And so, um, you know, Iran is a predominantly Shiite Persian country in a region which is predominantly Sunni Arab. And so I would say that the sectarian polarization uh, that we've been seeing in the Middle East uh, over the last several years, it, it hasn't been broadly beneficial to Iran because, again, the Shiites, Persians are, are, are minority mm-hmm. in, this, in this region. And the and, you know, final thing I'll say is that even in places in which Iran has a demographic advantage, here I'm talking about Lebanon and Iraq, places which have, if not a majority, of, but a, a plurality of Shia. You, we've seen uh, popular protests, even in the Shia communities in Lebanon and Iraq, against Iran's role in their country. Um, the Iranian consulate and, uh, and Najaf and Karbala in Iraq were, were burned down by protesters several months ago. And so, you know, going back to our, what we started our conversation talking about, this has really been... Um, a convergence of crises for Iran. They're dealing with a pandemic. They're dealing with the collapse in oil prices. They're dealing with enormous economic sanctions. And then they're dealing with uh, crises uh, throughout the region and in growing opposition to to their role in the region. Kareem, do you think, maybe this is an unfair question given, given there's not a lot of time yet, but do you think COVID-19 has affected Iranian foreign policy to any significant degree? I think uh, it's too early to tell. You would think that on one hand, given that the country is experiencing this national health crisis, uh, which has obviously been very costly to every country, that they would have less bandwidth to um, continue their regional adventurism. But I don't think we've seen... um, real signs of that so far. And, you know, one of the arguments which is commonly made, which is true, which is that, um, you know, Iran's military budget isn't nearly the military budget of some of America's regional allies, like Saudi Arabia and their Emirates, who spend a lot of money on very costly um, high-tech airplanes and and submarines and, and missiles. Uh, whereas, you know, Iran's form of asymmetric warfare has been much cheaper to operate. You know, I think that's that's probably true, although um, there's so much we don't know about Iranian military spending and the covert funding that go to groups like Hezbollah and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. But the reality is that um, for the Iranian government, the economic prosperity and well-being of its population has never been 
a primary or even secondary concern. They've they've always uh, put the the regional proxies and you know things like opposition to Israel, opposition to the United States as 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 one of the primary causes of the revolution. And so I think you will see uh, people going and going hungry in Iran before you will see Iran ceasing to fund Lebanese Hezbollah, for example. We're going to take a quick break, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Kareem Sajapur. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So I guess on the, on the COVID front, right, there's a possibility that the Iranians could look at the U.S. being inwardly focused and perceive an opportunity or at the same time, see the president in some political trouble as a result of COVID here and be somewhat fearful that he might want to pick a fight with them, right, leading up to the election. Have you sensed any of that kind of thinking on the part of the Iranians at all? I think we've certainly seen signs of the former, which is that uh, early on when the world and obviously the United States was consumed in the early days of the pandemic. Uh, Iran did launch, uh, Iran's proxies in Iraq launched a military attack uh, against U.S. forces in Iraq, which I believe had one or two casualties, if I'm not mistaken. I think uh, uh, yes. uh, two U.S. citizens and a British citizen were, were killed as a result. Um, so so you have seen signs that Iran is is testing the resolve of the United States. There have been incidents of Iranian ships continuing to harass U.S. ships in the Persian Gulf. Um, but at the same time, I think that this president, President Trump, has proven to be incredibly erratic. Uh, on one hand, he's made clear in the past his desire to have dialogue and a summit with Iran, um, and at the same time, he he killed Qasem Soleimani, he killed Iran's top military commanders. So I think that um, the Iranian regime is mindful of, of the fact that you know, President Trump is um, incredibly unpredictable, and I think the goal, the long-standing goal of Iran's supreme leader vis-a-vis the United States, has been neither peace nor war. You know, neither confrontation, nor neither outright confronta- confrontation nor conciliation. Mm. And I suspect that um, the Iranian regime is just going to try to hunker down and hold tight until November 2020 and, uh, and hope that uh, a Biden administration comes to office, um, which uh, will be more inclined to, to go back to the JCPOA, which would um, effectively remove very burdensome sanctions on Iran. Have you seen, Kareem, speaking of our election, have you seen any Iranian attempts to influence our election the way the Russians did in 2016? Absolutely. So, you know, uh, 
social media, uh, uh, cyber warfare, and social media bots and, and uh, uh, you know pr- propaganda is is a very cheap game these days. Uh, I have a, of a of a friend who who works on these issues closely, and he said that you know the the phishing operation it it hacked uh, John Podesta's email and the DNC's email. You know that could have been done by by a teenager. It was a very unsophisticated operation. And so you can have a, an enormous impact um, using cyber warfare at a very, very low cost. And so Iran is not a first-tier cyber power like the United States, Russia, and China. It's probably not even a second-tier power, but it's a third-tier power. And it um, has invested a lot in this over the years. And you see a lot of signs of this on, on Facebook and Twitter, uh, fake groups being created, trying to, um, like, like the Russian efforts, it's not necessarily advocating for a particular candidate. It's just trying to sow popular unrest uh, and discord among Americans. You may, they may even you know, be, be um, publicly advocating for two polar opposite groups mm-hmm. which are, which are um, fighting one another online. But, but it's absolutely true that Iran has followed the Russian lead, what Russia did in 2016, and they're trying to, to, to meddle with, in our elections the same way they, they feel like the United States right. has been meddling in Iranian internal politics over the years. Right. Um, Kareem, how do, you, how do you think the Iranians perceive U.S. policy? And is there any difference in Tehran on how folks think about what the U.S. is doing vis-a-vis Iran? Well, I think that the long-standing view of the supreme leader is that America's official policy towards Iran, whether they say it or not, is regime change. They don't want to see the Islamic Republic in power. The United States was never, never got over the fall of the Shah of Iran in 1979, who was America's great regional ally. And they've never come to accept the Islamic Republic. And so whether or not the United States says it, um, the, the, the real policy is regime change. And the Supreme Leader used to always say that it doesn't really make any difference who's in charge in Washington because the policy isn't, is the same. Now, I think Donald Trump has is, is probably disproven that worldview for a lot of Iranian officials. They saw there was actually a very notable difference between the policies of Barack Obama toward Iran and the policies of Donald Trump toward Iran. But I think, uh, Michael, and this is a point which is, I think, not well understood um, even in the United States. In my opinion, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't, let me put it this way, whether you have a U.S. president like President Obama, who was who was very supportive of engagement with Iran. I think if it were up to Secretary of State John Kerry, he would have loved to normalize relations with Iran and open up a U.S. embassy in Tehran and an Iranian embassy in Washington. Um, Whether you have an administration like that in Washington or you have an administration in Washington which is totally hostile to, to Iran, the disposition of the Iranian government towards the United States is not really going to change because this is a regime 
whose identity is really premised on opposition towards the United States. I always say there's kind of three pillars left of the 1979 revolution. You have the official slogan, death to America, uh, death to Israel is the second pillar. And the third pillar is the veil, the mandatory veil, hijab for women, which symbolizes the Islamic piety of the Islamic Republic. And so the Supreme Leader actually once, um, the, the former president of Iran, Mohammad Khatami, once told me in a private meeting uh, about 10 years ago or more in, in, in Oslo, um, President Khatami said, it was giving a, a private speech, and he said, there are those in both capitals, both Washington and Tehran, who don't want to restore relations because it's not in their personal interest to do so. And after his talk, I asked Khatami uh, about that specific point. I said, President Khatami, who were you referring to in Tehran when you say it's not in their interest to restore relations? And I was quite uh, surprised that he admitted to me privately, he said, you know, when I was president, the leader used to tell me that we need enmity with the United States. The revolution needs enmity with the United States. And so, um, you know, I think this is true about a lot of autocratic leaders around the world, including people like Fidel Castro, uh, the late Fidel Castro, Kim Jong-un. They kind of understand that their rule is much easier to preserve in a closed, isolated environment, which they have this external adversary which they can use for propaganda purposes as an, as a, and also as a pretext to to continue their repression. And Ayatollah Khamenei is 80 years old. He's been espousing this worldview for four decades, so he's not going to change. And that's why I said to you early on, I'm not optimistic about uh, a real change, any type of change, meaningful change in U.S.-Iran relations as long as he, Ayatollah Khamenei, remains at the helm in Iran. So just a few more questions, Kareem. You've been absolutely terrific. Kareem, can you walk us through what is going on at the UN right now with regard to Iran, Iranian missiles, and the nuclear deal? There's a lot of moving parts. Yeah, yeah. So essentially, the Trump administration unilaterally withdrew from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, uh, the official name of the Iran nuclear deal that was signed in 2015. And there were various parts to that agreement. And one of them was uh, uh, arms embargo, weapons embargo, uh, which inhibits Iran's ability to um, to buy and to, to import sophisticated military hardware, including missiles from different parts of the world. And um, the Trump administration, even though they withdrew from the deal, they now want to claim that um, you know, they, they can snap back sanctions against Iran for uh, violating these, uh, th- this, these weapons embargoes. And, and some of these uh, embargoes are, are set to expire. And so there's a real concern, especially in places like Israel and Saudi Arabia, that with the expiration of some of these uh, uh, arms embargoes that, you know, Iran is going to be able to import sophisticated military hardware, which either it can use itself or it can proliferate to its regional allies. Um, and, you know, countries that are signatories and remain signatories to the nuclear deal, like China and Russia, have said that they will veto U.S. attempts to 
snapback sanctions against Iran. And so, um, you know, this is uh, uh, one of the issues which is, is hotly debated right now. And I think it's, um, you know, the, the accusation against the Trump administration is that they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. On one hand, they pulled out of the nuclear deal and they snapped they, they slapped new sanctions uh, against Iran, even though Iran wasn't in violation of their agreement. And, and now they're trying to invoke the JCPOA um, to deprive Iran from um, importing um, and, and purchasing sophisticated military hardware. So, Kareem, I, I love listening to you talk. And what you've said today really takes me to two kind of really big questions. I wasn't actually planning on asking these questions, but you sort of brought me here. The first is, if I took what you said earlier correctly, bringing change to Iran, in particular the kind of change that we're looking for, right? Better behavior in the region, you know, no pursuit of nuclear weapons, that sort of thing. You made it sound like that's going to be extraordinarily difficult to do. So given that, what approach would you recommend to a president that he or she take? You know, I really think that the best template for dealing with Iran is, is following the Ronald Reagan template vis-a-vis the Soviet Union in the 1980s. And I, I certainly don't want to elevate Iran to you know, being a global superpower. Iran is not a superpower. It's not a rival of the United States, it's a it's a regional power, um, but the the policies which I think Reagan effectively used against the USSR can be instructive in dealing with Iran. And what that, what I mean by that is that um, I think Ronald Reagan didn't shy away from from calling out the the malign nature of the Soviet regime. He he uh, voiced solidarity with. Russian civil society with Russian dissidents. He, you know, he called them the evil empire. Um, so, so he didn't try to downplay the the you know hostility of the USSR and the repression of the USSR. But at the same time, he was very willing to engage uh, USSR leadership uh, in arms control talks and, and, and multiple arms control talks, and so. You know, I, I think it was very effective because essentially, you know, when you look at the collapse of authoritarian regimes throughout history, I think there's usually a couple key ingredients. Uh, obviously, number one, you do need pressure from below. Um, but I think even more importantly than that, you need divisions from above. You need divisions at the top. And I think that in our Iran policy, we have never really come up with a policy which which does both of those mm-hmm. things, which on one hand it kind of uh, doesn't is not shy about exposing the Iranian regime for what it is. It's a highly uh, repressive, corrupt system which does terrible things to its own people and has been a malign force in the region. Um, but doing that while also being open to dialogue and engagement and arms control deals with the Islamic Republic. And I think ultimately, um, you know, you want to continue to expose to the Iranian people that the obstacle 
between them and a better future is not the United States and U.S. sanctions. It's their own leadership. Um, but we also have to be very humble in saying that um, and, and knowing that, you know, it's the, the world in 2020 is a much different world than the world of 1953, where a couple of years of an American embargo could actually bring down um, a country or you could, you know, carry out coups, which could bring, bring down um, political leaders you didn't like. You know, the timeline of change in Iran is incredibly unpredictable. I think the last time we spoke, Michael, I, I told you about this North African philosopher uh, I admire called Ibn Khaldun, yes. who lived in the 14th century. Yes. And he had come up with this theory, which is nowadays in modern times called the power cycle theory, in which he said that empires are built and destroyed over three generations. The first generation builds it, the second generation preserves it, and the third generation loses it. And, you know, the Soviet Union essentially lasted three generations. And the Islamic Republic is really entering its second generation of leaders. So, you know, I think that, um, in my opinion, going back to your question about what is a sound policy, I think this is a, a regime which which we can effectively contain. Um, it's, it's really a, a, a virtually friendless government. It's only long-time friend has been the Assad regime in Syria. Otherwise, it's, it's incredibly uh, isolated. Um, you know, its economy is totally ravaged, and it's incredibly unpopular with its own people. And so I think um, we shouldn't be shy about calling out the malign nature of uh, the Iranian government. I disagree with my friends on the left who think if only we're nice to Iran, they will reciprocate and their, their regional and domestic behavior will change. I, I don't think there's any signs of that. Um, but I think we can also walk and chew gum at the same time, which means, you know, we can we can talk to Iran um, about the nuclear program and maybe even sign a follow-up to the JCPOA while also countering what Iran has been doing in places like Syria and Iraq and Yemen and elsewhere. And the final thing I'll say on this is that you know, when you another um, you know tenet of 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 U.S. foreign policy towards the Soviet Union, which was so effective, which was our alliances, um, especially with with uh, um, European countries. You know, a common alliance against the Soviet Union against communism, and I think that's one thing which has really been lacking um, in the Trump administration has been you know, either um, the abandonment of our allies like the Kurds or kind of the denigration of the whole concept of having alliances. And I think our our allies, um, whether our regional allies or Europeans or Asian allies, um, are going to be very important in helping to counter the malign um, influence of the Islamic Republic. Kareem, it is always great to talk to you. Thank you for joining us on the show, and we hope to get you back someday. Thank you. It's my great pleasure. Thank you, Michael. That was Kareem Sajapur. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts.
You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast. And to ask Jeff some questions, because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.